the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Today on Cornerstone Connection with Pastor Gary Hamrick. Real love is calling, listen, truth opens up your eyes. When you and I get saved, the Bible speaks about our sanctification in a few different progressive terms. We are sanctified when we trust Christ as our Savior because the word sanctified means to be set apart, to be made holy under the Lord. That happens the moment you trust Christ as your Savior. You are marked by the Lord, set apart for the Lord, and you're sanctified in Him. But the Bible also speaks of sanctification as a progress and process of your Christian walk. This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through 1 Timothy. As believers, we're marked by God and set apart from the rest of the world the moment we put our faith in Christ. However, having even the slightest confusion regarding sanctification in either the past or present tense can be a stumbling block in our walk. In today's message, Pastor Gary will help you to better understand the difference between sanctified by faith and spiritual growth. In his study, you'll learn that while we've been made righteous before God in Christ, we're continually being sanctified as we grow. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of 1 Timothy chapter 6 with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection. First Timothy in your New Testament, chapter 6. If you haven't been here for our study of 1 Timothy, I'm going to summarize the last several weeks and bring us up to speed. Uh, Paul is writing what we call a pastoral epistle to Timothy, who is, relatively speaking, a young pastor of the church at Ephesus. He is believed to be about 30 years of age, but he refers to him as a young man, so it's all relative. But here, uh, Paul writes this letter as an encouragement, an exhortation Uh, and um, some direction to Timothy as he pastors this church. And we've come to to realize that in the course of this letter, Paul is spelling out what will end up being on our list, seven things that should define the church. So we've already been through six of these things. He talks in chapter 1 about the need for the church to be a place of sound doctrine. In chapter 1, verse 3, he says, As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain men not to teach false doctrine any longer, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. So the church should be a place of sound doctrine. Number two, it should also be a place of grace. Paul goes on in chapter 1 to talk a little bit about his own testimony 
In verse uh, 12, he says, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me faithful, appointing me to his service. He said, even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, those are three terms that he uses to describe his own past. What would be some words, I'm not asking you to call out loud, but what would be some words that you would describe concerning yourself and your past? And yet, he says, and this is good news for all of us, Despite my past, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. And he says, the grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. So the church should be a place of grace where people understand you can have a past and you can be forgiven and God can make a new life out of your, you know, somebody once said, out of my mess comes my message, which is now my testimony of God's grace and his wonderful forgiveness in in my life. And then also he says, number three, it should be a place of prayer. He starts out chapter two by saying, I urge then, first of all, that requests and prayers and intercession be made with thanksgiving for everyone. And then he gets specific, especially for kings and all those in authority, that we might live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. Number four, he also tells us that the church should be defined as a place with godly elders and deacons. And into chapter 3, he says that there's a trustworthy saying, if anyone sets his heart on being an overseer or an elder or a pastor, he desires a noble task. And then he goes on through chapter 3 to talk about the qualifications for elders and deacons. Uh, Number five on our list is that the church should also be a place that that is clearly teaching the Bible. In chapter 4, verse 13, Paul exhorts Timothy, he says, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture to preaching and to teaching. So that's why we devote a large portion of all of our services and all our gatherings to teaching God's Word, to the public reading of Scripture, because it is really through God's Word that we are equipped, that we come to salvation. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. So it is important not to dilute God's Word, not to deny God's Word, but to apply it, to read it, to teach it, And so that's why we do what we do around here. And then uh, last week we talked about number six on the list is the caring for people. In chapter five, Paul draws particular attention to widows and he distinguishes uh, older widows from younger widows and how the church should come alongside, but but not in every case, because sometimes a widow has family members that should step up to the plate and have first priority in taking care of family members. So he, he discusses that at length in chapter 5, and now we come here to chapter 6. And the main point out of chapter 6 is number 7 on our list. It's the last point on our list, and it is that the church should be defined as a place where people are pursuing godliness. Now, Paul loves that word godliness, as we've mentioned before through this letter, because the word godliness does not appear anywhere in the New Testament until you get here to 1 Timothy. And then when you get here to 1 Timothy, that word godliness, or NIV, sometimes we use the word godly, uh, but it is a word that appears in the original Greek language eight times in the book of 1 Timothy. So nowhere in the New Testament until 1 Timothy, and then Paul drops it eight times. So it's really emphasized a lot here in this sixth chapter. Let me just do a quick survey with you and show you here in chapter 6. Look at verse 3. He says, If anyone teaches false doctrine and does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching, and that's, that's the same word. Some translations say, and to the teaching of godliness. So that's a use of the word. And then he goes 
further down, verse verse 4, I'll just keep reading. He is conceited and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions. Verse 5, in constant friction between men of corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness, there's the word again, is a means to financial gain. Next verse, verse 6, but godliness, there's the word again, godliness with contentment is great gain. And then also he uses the word in verse 11 when he says, but you, man of God, flee from all this and pursue righteousness godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Now, we'll come back and we'll talk about all these verses, but I just wanted to point out to you that, you know, four out of the eight times that Paul emphasizes godliness in this letter is here in chapter 6. So, he really ends strongly on this theme of the church being a place where people pursue godliness. Now, we've talked about this, but again, just to kind of define it, godliness is from an old English word, godlikeness, and the breakdown of the word in, in the Greek, the original language of the New Testament, is the word eusebia from two Greek words, eu, you, is the prefix of this word, meaning well, and sebomei is the suffix of the word, and it means devout worship or reverence. So godlikeness or godliness is when we are uh, living a life that is devoted well to God, that worships well God, that it reveres well God, and that we should be intent about this. We should be intentional about wanting to live lives of purity and holiness, okay? When you and I get saved, the Bible speaks about our sanctification in a few different progressive terms. We are sanctified when we trust Christ as our Savior because the word sanctified means to be set apart, to be made holy under the Lord. That happens the moment you trust Christ as your Savior. You are marked by the Lord, set apart for the Lord, and you're sanctified in Him. But the Bible also speaks of sanctification as a progress and process of your Christian walk where it's not just a one and done, it is a lifestyle committed to living for the glory of God, that we want to honor Him in the way we speak, okay? Get rid of all filthy language. We want to honor Him in the way we live, okay? Love your wives, respect your husbands, uh, be devoted to one another in love. Um, don't be sleeping around your boyfriend or your girlfriend. Honor the Lord in, in everything about the way you conduct business. And, and everything about our lives should reflect the godliness, the godlikeness. And then, you know, progressively until the day that we are ultimately with the Lord, and then our sanctification is sealed once and for all because there is no flesh that is warring with our soul. But as Christians, we need to be devoted to the Lord in godlikeness and holiness and walking in this reverence and worship and devotion to the Lord, doing it well, because it honors Him. And so, this is the life of the Christian, uh, and this should be our constant pursuit. So, let's start here at chapter 6 and make our way through this chapter this evening and, and see here as, as Paul uh, ends this letter with some final exhortations here. So, he says in verse 1, he says, all who are under the yoke of slavery should consider that their masters worthy of full respect, circle that word respect, so that God's name and our teaching may not be slandered. Those who have believing masters are not to show less respect for them because they are brothers. Instead, they are to serve, circle that word, serve them even better 
because those who benefit from their service are believers and dear to them. These are the things you are to teach and urge on them. So Timothy is instructed here by Paul that when he's addressing those within his congregation who might be slaves, and and I'll define that in a moment, this is first century Rome, that the the exhortation here is, I, I want you to serve your masters with respect, and I want you to serve them well, I want you to honor them, whether your masters are believers or not. Now, again, we need to get context on this passage because I don't want anybody to think, and sometimes skeptics and critics of the Bible accuse the Bible of somehow condoning slavery because it speaks of slavery here. I mean, why doesn't Paul just come right out and say, this is wrong, this is evil, this is inhumane, which it is all those things. The reason why he's not saying those things in this passage, though when you look at the sum total of Scripture, God clearly is opposed to slavery, man's inhumanity to man. The reason why Paul's not dealing with it on a moral level is because first century Roman Empire, gang, listen, 30 to 40 percent of the entire Roman Empire were slaves. They were not slaves in the way that our own history has marred America. They were not slaves by virtue of someone's race. A person was a slave in first century Roman Empire because they were either prisoners of war, it's still not justified, I'm just explaining, prisoners of war, or in the Roman Empire, you could actually sell yourself into slavery because you owed a debt that you couldn't repay. When someone became in over their heads financially, they could sell themselves, and so we would say more or less an indentured servant But you would now be property to somebody within the Roman Empire that you as a Roman citizen sold yourself into slavery. Now, you could purchase your freedom back, and once you got back on your feet, you could regain your freedom, purchase your freedom, or your master might give you your freedom as a gift. But the typical slave in the Roman Empire was either a prisoner of war uh, or someone who sold themselves as a Roman citizen into slavery. What Paul is doing here, he's saying, okay, listen, If you find yourself in this circumstance, either by virtue of you were taken against your will as a prisoner of war, or you sold yourself into slavery, make the best of that circumstance. So he's not condoning slavery here, okay? The Bible is clear about the mistreatment of one person to another, and yet what he's saying is, if you find yourself in that situation, this is my advice to you. I want you to respect your masters. Now, this is, you, we can translate this to 21st century friends, okay? In, in your place of employment or whatever structure you find yourself in within some structure of authority, respect authority. That's one message that is clear to take away from this instruction here, okay? Again, we're, we're living in a day when people don't respect authority as much as they used to, and it's tragic and it's sad. But, you know, it used to be much more, you know, yes, I I remember growing up, and my dad usually watches from Virginia Beach, so whereas, hey, dad. But I can remember growing up that it was, you know, until I got older, it was yes, sir, and no, sir, in my house. And it it wasn't like with, you know, a heavy hand. It was just my dad was teaching me respect from an early age. And then, you know, I, I think around being a teenager, you know, then, then there was an understanding of respect. But I remember just as a little, so I didn't have to keep saying that. But as a, as a little kid, I just remember that was, it was yes, sir. It was no, sir. It was yes, ma'am. It was no, ma'am. And it wasn't even just with mom and dad. It was with older adults that I would meet. Now, how many of you remember saying yes, sir, no, sir, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am? Okay. And, and, but what that did was it, it instilled within me 
just a measure of respect. And we're living in a culture now where that is just not as prevalent. And uh, I think we have to do a better job of instilling those things in our children, the next generation, because when they grow up, they're going to have to have a boss that they report to, or they're going to have to have some manager, or they're going to have to have somebody in their life who is an authority figure. And we have to learn to be respectful. So Paul says here, you know, if you find yourself in the circumstance, I want you to be respectful. He even adds here, as a believer, and one of the beautiful things about Christianity is it levels the playing field, okay? There's no better than or worse than people. Men aren't better than women. Women aren't better than men. White's not better than black. Black's not better than white. And in this context, the first century, slave's not better than free, and free's not better than slave. Because Christianity is the universal equalizer, where we are all valued and we are all equal in the eyes of God because of the cross. Jesus Christ died for all, and God is no respecter of persons because God loves all and died for all, okay? So we all have equal value. And one of the things that Paul was doing intentionally was when I validate the value of slaves that in the culture were regarded as second-class citizens, I'm actually making people aware that the playing field is, is level And so one of the things that he says here is, now listen, if you happen to be a slave and you're serving a master, if your master happens to be a believer, don't slack off in your responsibilities. Because he said it would be easy to just start to relate to one another as, you know, and and don't do this with your boss either, by the way, right? So like if you work at a place where your, your boss is a Christian, don't be just like, yo, bro, I guess I can just slide in here like a half hour late tomorrow morning because we're all Christians, word, you know? Don't do that because it'll be like, word, you're on your way out. And so Paul's saying here like, okay, listen, if you happen to have the pleasure of, of serving a, a master who is a believer, he says in verse 2, those who have believing masters are not to show less respect for them because they're brothers. Like, I guess you'll show me favors now because we're, we're bros, right? Or sisses. Uh, but, you know, and, uh, and he says, but instead, he says, they are to serve them even better, even better. So the other word I ask you to serve there, uh, to circle is the word serve, because I think respect and serve, respect and serve are terms that should never die in the heart of a Christian. We should always be showing respect to other people, and we should always have the disposition of serving them. You know, Jesus washed his disciples' feet for a reason, because he wanted to teach a lesson to all of us, beginning with his own disciples, to serve and to just be willing to humble yourself, and not to be better than, but to just be willing to serve and to help, and to just consider others better than yourselves, and to show that in the way that you treat them, and serve them, and love them. Well, then he goes on here in verse 3 to address the potential problem that material ambition can pose in the life of the believer. So he warns here, verse 3, if anyone teaches false doctrines uh, and does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching, he is conceited and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in every strife and, uh, sorry, envy, strife, malicious talk, uh, evil suspicions and constant friction between men of corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. Now, 
in this passage here, what, what Paul is referring to are, are those within the congregation. He's not addressing this with Timothy. He's saying, listen, I want you to be aware that within the numbers, there's going to be some people who have this unhealthy, let's, let's just say this, this unhealthy obsession with wanting to argue over words. And not just want to argue over words, but want to argue over words that are about false doctrine. So it's a double whammy here. David Guzik in his commentary said this section here is basically a warning against the uh, argumentation of heretics. Where people get together and they want to talk about doctrine that is, that is incorrect doctrine and then they just want to argue about it. And, and that's just not healthy in any church. It's not healthy to just start to debate and split hairs over words. So, I mean, look, words are important. Words are important. And, and, and the corruption of a word or two can mean the difference between solid doctrine and false doctrine. So I'm not downplaying the importance of words. But some people can just, like, be obsessed with a word. And then they want to argue with Christians over what does elect mean? And let's talk about elect. And who is elect? And were you elect before you were elect? Or have you always been elect? I mean, do you know people like this? It's not healthy. It's okay to just have discussions. But some people obsess about it. And this is the warning here. And what makes it worse is, again, when they quarrel about words that are really false doctrine. So it's just a double whammy here. Argumentation of heretics. But then that last part there in verse 5 seems a little out of place. He says, he says, who have been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means to financial gains. Uh, what in the world does that mean? You know, I think today when we think about some false doctrines that float around and they can be ever so subtle, I think one of those is how Christianity is commonly presented in terms of what you gain by following Jesus. And unfortunately, people think that coming to faith in Jesus is a stepping stone to material success or happiness. And you may experience material success and happiness uh, after coming to know Christ or before coming to know Christ, but what we need to realize is that the gospel of Jesus Christ, I mean, what we gain is what we don't deserve anyway. And what we gain is forgiveness and redemption and acceptance. And, and for that, we have an eternal inheritance in, in heaven, okay? But if we think this life in following Christ is all about just how my life can be improved and what I gain out of it, we are sadly mistaken. Because the Christian life is about dying to self. And it's about taking up your cross daily and dying to self. And it's about living a sacrificial life for the glory of God. And it is, it is about seeing ourselves as dead and alive in Christ. And no longer living for the pleasures of this world or for what I can get out of it. But it's what, what I can give to the kingdom, how I can serve the kingdom, how I can honor the Lord in my life of sacrifice and self-denial and just dying to self. So I think we have kind of almost a Western concept of Christianity these days where we think, you know, come to Christ and Jesus makes you rich. And Jesus, you know, um, you never have another sickness in your life. And if you do, it's because you don't have enough faith and all this kind of nonsense, gang. And 
Listen, what God calls us to is a sacrificial life of following Jesus because we can never outgive what God has given to us. Discipleship is a big part of growing in faith. It's taking the time to be mentored or to mentor another and encourage one another to dive deeper into a relationship with Jesus. This is a big part of the relationship between the Apostle Paul and Timothy, the subject of this New Testament letter Pastor Gary has been teaching from. The Apostle Paul spent time pouring into Timothy, giving him practical instructions to build and lead his church well. Paul encouraged Timothy along with teaching him, and this relationship never ended. Do you have someone pouring into your spiritual life? And are you taking the time to invest in someone else's life? It doesn't matter if you've been following Jesus for five minutes or five decades. You have something to give, and you always have room to grow in your own faith. We're so glad you joined Pastor Gary today to study the book of 1 Timothy. To hear more from this series, visit cornerstoneconnection.cc. Or if you're someone frequently on the go, download our mobile app to take these messages along for the ride. It's always good to have sound truth from God's Word available to infuse your day with Him. Find a link at our website. Again, that's cornerstoneconnection.cc. Thanks for joining us today for Cornerstone Connection. They say you're a wandering soul That you've got no place to go But still you know You're not alone Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.